Please take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 6. Where we last left Jesus and the disciples, they were up on a hillside on the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus had just fed a multitude of people, probably between ten and 15,000 people total, with just a little boy's lunch. A few loaves of, of barley rolls and, uh, and a few fish. And he was able to miraculously feed all those people. Just an amazing miracle. The only one recorded in all four Gospels, one that we're all very familiar with because it's so spectacular, what Jesus was able to do. But in a way... It was a failure. Jesus' goal was not just to feed their bellies temporarily with a few barley loaves. His goal was to feed their hearts eternally with the bread of life. And they didn't get it. They missed the point of the miracle. The disciples didn't get the message. The crowd didn't get the message. And so that's where we pick this up in the next passage of Scripture here. Jesus follows up this miracle... And, and there's a, a moment of just frustration on his part. Uh, he's, he's, he's disappointed deeply. Uh, and then we see another miracle. But I, I want us to focus a little bit more on the disciples, on the condition of their heart, and why is it they just don't seem to get it. So let's look at this story in Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountain to pray. Now, let me just pause there for a minute. Uh, you know, so Jesus uh, has performed this amazing miracle. Uh, the, the, the Bible tells us in John that the crowd immediately wanted to force Jesus to become their king. They tried to force a crown on him. They wanted to take him straight away to Jerusalem and have him overthrow Rome right then and there. That's what the crowds wanted. They wanted Jesus to be this military, political Messiah. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what Jesus was communicating about who he was. The disciples didn't get it. Because after the story of the feeding of the 4,000, which we talked about last week as well, very shortly after that, they get into a boat with Jesus to once again go across the lake. And on the way across the lake, they start worrying about whether they have enough bread for lunch. And Jesus is like, really, guys? Really? I'm right here. They didn't get it. They don't understand. And so we see Jesus disappointed frustrated, he sends the disciples across the sea, he sends the crowds home, and he says, I've got to, I've got to spend some alone time with my Father in prayer. I've, I've got to get some patience and some perspective here. So he goes away to spend with the Father in prayer as he sends away the disciples and he sends away the crowds. And then it says, when evening came, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Now, if, Mike, if you'll put up this map, I want you to understand this. So we've got the Sea of Galilee. Gergesa is over here on the right. Okay, Jesus has been across to Gergesa. Okay, that's where he uh, will feed the 4,000. It's where he cast the demon out of the man, uh, the legion of demons. And then they've gone back to Capernaum. And then they've gone up to between Capernaum and Bethsaida, that's where a lot of scholars think that the feeding of the 5,000 probably happened. And so they had gone up there. Now you'll see Bethsaida is just a little bit over to the right. They just have to cross a little tiny part of the Sea of Galilee to get to Bethsaida. 
But Mark says they end up towards the middle of the lake. And then as we'll see in a few minutes, they actually end up going all the way over here to Gennesaret on the other side of the lake. They don't go anywhere near where Jesus wants them to go. So it says about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down and they were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. So while Jesus was up on the mountain praying, his disciples were dutifully doing what he said. They were sailing across that part of the sea to Bethsaida. But as as often happens in the Sea of Galilee, a, a strong northeast wind suddenly comes blowing, and it's so strong that they can't even uh, get where they're going. It is blowing against them. So the current, the wind, the waves, they're, they're struggling. They've lowered the sails. They've got out the oars. They're, they're, just, they're really driving into these oars, and they work hard at it for about seven or eight hours. But it was no use. They weren't getting any closer to Bethsaida. In fact, they were getting further away and eventually would end up on the other side of the lake. Now, what fascinates me, just like with the earlier story with the storm, the disciples are in trouble because they were obeying Jesus. That's the reason they're in this mess. And I have to think, what if they had disobeyed Jesus? What if Jesus said, go to Bethsaida, and they thought to themselves, we're not going to go to Bethsaida. We're going to go find a nice place right around here. We're going to get a good meal. We're going to find a warm fire. We're going to sleep in a soft bed. They would have avoided the wind and the waves. They would have avoided all of that struggle. And they would have had a restful night's sleep. It was obedience that made them uncomfortable. Following Jesus isn't always smooth sailing, is it? Sometimes it means working hard against the contrary wind. Sometimes it means going against the current of the world around us. But when we obey Jesus, it also brings immeasurable joy and peace and eternal blessings as we experience His presence and the power of His Holy Spirit working through us. Yes, if we disobey Jesus, we might avoid the winds of inconvenience and struggle, but we also miss out on the wind of His Holy Spirit filling ourselves and taking us to places we can't imagine and experiencing His power working through us. So while they're struggling out there on the lake, Jesus is on the mountain praying, but Jesus was also watching after them. Based on several elements in the story, we can deduce that this happened in spring around the time of Passover, which means there was a full moon. And this wasn't like a rainstorm, it was a windstorm. So I imagine the moon was shining. Jesus could look down from that mountain and could see the disciples struggling out there on the sea below. And Jesus had compassion on them. And he left behind his needs, his struggles, and he went out there to serve them. And I love that picture. I love the picture that when we struggle in our walk with Jesus, when we feel like that we're on our own, Jesus is standing at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. He sees us. He knows our struggles. And He comes to rescue us for God's glory and for our good. And so Jesus, as He often does, comes to rescue His people in need. And just as in the Old Testament... That deliverance becomes a self-revelation of God. 
The text says he was about to pass them by. Now, when you first read that, you think, well, what does that mean? Was Jesus going to ignore them? Was Jesus going to walk right on by and I'll see you on the other side, guys. Good luck. No, that's not what that means. Rather, this phrase signals a self-revelation of God. That's what Jesus was doing. The same phrase was in our Old Testament reading where God's glory passed by Moses on Mount Sinai, revealing His identity, His his compassion, His glory, His covenant name. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah the prophet is on Mount Horeb, and it says God passed by. And in the same way, Jesus was passing by the disciples. Now, I think the best parallel verse to this that was found in Job, Job chapter 9. Job says of God, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When He passes me, I cannot see Him. When He goes by, I cannot perceive Him. What a striking parallel between Mark 48 and and Job 9, 8 through 11, where it's Jesus who's treading on the waves of the sea. And when Jesus passes by the disciples, they don't see Him. They fail to perceive who it is that's coming. But you know, that's kind of the point of Job 9. Job is making a stark contrast between God and us, His ways and our ways. God can do what humans could never do could never even conceive of doing. His wisdom is beyond compare. He moves mountains, shakes the earth, obscures the sun, turns the moon to blood. He sets the stars in their place. He treads on the waves of the sea. One commentator wrote that God described by Job is holy God, holy other, and can never be confused with a human being. But Jesus came to do something new. Jesus came to do something different, something unexpected, something revolutionary. Jesus came to make this mysterious, enigmatic God of Job knowable and known to people in a way He had never been before. As Paul says in Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Or as Jesus even said of Himself in His high priestly prayer, He said, Righteous Father, though the world does not know You, I know You, and they that know You have sent Me. I have made You known to them and will continue to make You known in order that the love You have for Me may be in them and that I Myself may be in them. Just as God passed by Moses and Elijah in the person of Jesus Christ, God is passing by every single believer, including you and me, revealing the majestic, awesome, glorious, powerful God, the face of the Father, so that we can know Him and love Him and abide in Him. That's who Jesus is. But the disciples don't see it. They don't get it. They're missing out on this glorious power, this compassionate presence of God that's passing by them. You know, it reminds me of the question after Jesus calms the storm in Mark chapter 4. They say, who is this? Who is this that can command the wind and the waves? After all they had seen and heard and experienced, they still didn't get it. It blows my mind that their first inclination is that this was a ghost. Really? Not an angel, 
Not Jesus. No, they're like, it must be a ghost. That's your go-to? I mean, come on, guys. No wonder they were terrified. When we fail to look to Jesus and to recognize Him working in our midst, we imagine all kinds of things that make us afraid, don't we? But just as Jesus does for each of us when we're afraid, when we're struggling against the winds of life that slow us down and send us off course, Jesus calls out to them with the reassurance. He says, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. In that simple phrase, Jesus gives two commands and a promise. The commands are take courage and don't be afraid. Now, how often do we read God telling people that in the Bible? Take courage, don't be afraid. Makes me think especially of Joshua 1.9, where God says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Right here in Joshua 1.9, we see the commands. Take courage and don't be afraid. And we see the promise. The Lord will be with you. Now, Jesus boiled it all down to the divine name. He simply said, I am. That's what the Greek literally says. What Jesus said was, take courage, I am. Fear not. Jesus was letting them know the great I am was in their midst. The Creator God of the universe was the one who was with them. And so they had nothing to fear. And to demonstrate that, Jesus climbs into the boat with them and immediately the wind and the wave stops. Which reminds us that whenever we invite Jesus into our struggles in life, He immediately brings His peace, His reassurance, His presence. But still, the disciples didn't get it. They're still missing the point of what Jesus was saying. That they don't see this amazing, world-shaking revelation of God in their midst. How are they missing this? Why did they not recognize Jesus? Well, Mark explains it very simple. Look back at verses 51 and 52. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now let's break that down. The first thing Mark says is they were confused about Christ. They were confused about Christ. The Greek word for amazed literally means confused. It also means out of their mind. They were out of their mind about Jesus. They were losing their mind about what was happening in front of them. This is the same word that Jesus' associates used of him. We saw this earlier where they said about Jesus, he was out of his mind. It's the same word. So this is more than just that they were amazed, that they were in wonder, they were in confusion. It's like the gears were turning and smoke was coming out of their ears because this just wasn't computing. Now why? Why did this not compute? Well, Mark goes on to tell us, because they misunderstood the miracle. They misunderstood the miracle. Again, the Greek word uh, for understand means perceive, to have insight. They failed to have insight into what the miracle of the loaves meant. Again, Jesus has used this same word uh, back in Mark 4.12 as he quotes Isaiah. He's talking about why he uses parables. He says, they may be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. Jesus didn't mean that about his own disciples, though. He was talking about the crowds. But here it's the disciples that aren't perceiving and understanding. Because they didn't understand the insight into Jesus' identity as the Creator God in human flesh, as the Good Shepherd who leads and feeds His flock, who provides for and protects His sheep, they're confused about Jesus walking on the water to them. They don't understand. But why 
Didn't they understand? After all they've seen and heard and experienced, why at this point do they not understand? I mean, we're, we're finishing up the sixth chapter. We're almost halfway through the book. Why do they not understand? Here's the root. Here's the crux. Mark says it's because they hardened their hearts. They had hardened their hearts. Now, again, the Greek word here for hardened literally means petrified. Their hearts were petrified. Now, that's a word picture. But it also can mean stubborn, closed-minded. This idea of stubborn or hard hearts, or as we heard in our Old Testament reading, stiff necks. I like that, a stiff-necked people. That, that theme is found throughout the Bible. This root of the disciples' failure to recognize and understand Jesus' power, His character, His divine identity, was because their hearts were hard. Now, let's think about this for just a minute. What does that mean? Well, we have to first understand what heart means in the Bible. It doesn't mean your, your blood-pumping organ. When the Bible talks about the human heart, the idea is it's the moral center from which flow our thoughts and our feelings, our actions, even our words come from our hearts. It's one of the richest biblical terms that means it, it, it encompasses every dimension of human existence. Every dimension. Your heart symbolizes the center of your deepest trusts and fears and desires and passions and loves, which is why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Why? For everything you do flows from it. So watch your heart. It's that from which everything you do flows the essence of who you are. The Bible tells us to seek God with all our heart, to love God with all our heart, to trust God with all our heart, to ask God to try to search and know our hearts. Why? Because our hearts can also be filled with evil. Our hearts can deceive us and lead us astray. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Beyond cure? That's pretty harsh. Thankfully, our God can do what we cannot do. What's impossible for us is not impossible for God. He is the only one who can cure our hearts. He's the only one who can understand our hearts. Which is why Jeremiah 24, 7, God says, I will give them a heart to know me, for I am the Lord. They will be my people and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. And why is that? How is it that their heart will that our hearts will know him and return to him? Because of what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. God says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Ultimately, the only cure for our hearts is for God to transform it into a new heart. A soft and tender heart. That's what Ezekiel means by a heart of flesh. He means not a heart that's dead, cold as stone, but a heart that's alive. A heart that beats in rhythm with the heart of God. But how do we respond to this message? This gospel message. This is the gospel message. That God has given us a heart, but sin has made that heart dead, cold, like stone. And it is only through Jesus Christ that we can be given a new, living, tender heart. How do we respond to that? It's like the parable of the soils Jesus talked about. You know, the, the sower sows the seed and some soils rock and, and hard and won't accept it and some is good soil and will accept it. What kind of heart do we have? How receptive is our heart to this message of God? 
We either have hearts that are tender and respond to it or hearts that are hard and are dull to it. There's no better example of that contrast than two kings in Second Chronicles. The first is young King Josiah. You remember Josiah. He was the young king of Judah that had stumbled across the law and was convicted that they weren't living up to it. And so he led this great religious revival in the land. And so God says of him in 2 Chronicles 34, 27, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before God when you heard what he spoke against this place and its people, because you humbled yourself before me and tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Josiah had a heart that was receptive. Now contrast that a generation later with King, wicked King Zedekiah. And Zedekiah was so wicked that it was under his kingship that Babylon finally came and took Israel, took Judah away into exile. God finally washed his hands of them and, and, and let his judgment fall completely on them because of Zedekiah. Listen to what it says in 2 Chronicles 30:16 about him. He became stiff-necked and hardened his heart and would not turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. So we can be like Josiah and have a responsive heart, or we can be like Zedekiah and have a hard heart. See, people ultimately bear the responsibility for the condition of their hearts. You can choose to have a hard heart, refuse to listen and believe God's clear message, refuse to attribute to Him the works of His hand. And when we do, when we do that, we become like the Jews that Jeremiah described in Jeremiah 7.24 when he says they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward, not forward. And back to the Sea of Galilee, that's literally what the disciples are doing. They're going backwards, not forwards. Not just because they're driven by the winds on the Sea of Galilee, but because their hearts are being driven by the winds. Their hearts are being led off course by the wind of the crowd that's calling for Jesus to be this military leader. And the disciples are struggling because that's what they want too. But they're beginning to realize that that's not the kind of leader Jesus intends to be. He didn't come for a political or a military revolution. It's not that I, I think the disciples were unable to understand this. They were unwilling to understand it. They didn't want to listen. They didn't want to change their expectation of the Messiah. They didn't want to shift their paradigm about Jesus. Mark uses the phrase hard or stubborn heart only three times in his Gospels. Two of them are about the disciples, including this one. Only one is about the Pharisees. When we think about that, it's interesting that Faith is not inevitable. Faith isn't automatic, even for people who are literally with Jesus physically in His presence. Because faith in the Bible is rarely a noun. It's rarely something you have. It's most often a verb. It's something you do. It's a choice you make, a choice to trust, a choice to surrender, a choice to lay down your life and take up the cross and follow Jesus. And they, at this point, were unwilling to do that. Their hearts were hard. And so they misunderstood the miracle and they were confused about Christ. So what's the solution? How can we keep our hearts soft as believers? How can we, who have the Holy Spirit within us, make sure we recognize Jesus? Let's finish this passage real quick and I want to give you three quick things that we, two, th- two things we can do and one thing only Jesus can do. Uh, verse uh, 54, as soon as they got out of the boat, People recognized Jesus. 
They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched him were healed. Isn't it amazing that here the crowd, that Mark usually is very negative about, here the crowd actually are the people we should emulate. They're able to do what the apostles could not do. The apostles did not recognize Jesus walking on the water, but the minute Jesus got out of the boat, the crowd recognized Jesus. It's amazing to me. The crowd was able to understand Jesus better than his own disciples were. Why were they able to recognize him? How was it their hearts were soft? Two qualities about them we can emulate, and then one thing only Jesus can do for us. First, we see that they reached out with compassion to others. They didn't just come running to Jesus the minute he got out of the boat. No, they went out and they got the sick. They went out and found found people that were needy and brought them to Jesus. They were doing what Jesus has commanded us to do, to go into all the world and make disciples, to bring the lost to Him. But how often are we just clamoring to get to Jesus? I need some time with Jesus, which is great. We need time with Jesus. But are we stumbling over those who don't know Him? Are we ignoring the lost around us? Are we willing to inconvenience ourselves on a Sunday morning to help bring somebody with us to church? They reached out in compassion. Listen, it's hard to reach out in compassion to the lost and have a heart that's hard toward God's Word. Secondly, we see that they looked up in communion with Jesus. They desired to be close to Him. They begged just to touch the fringes of His garments. I have to wonder if the disciples maybe at this point have already started to take for granted Jesus' presence with them. You know, did they feel that desperate to be close to Jesus? Or has familiarity sort of, you know, just kind of, you know, Jesus is just there. You know, there are many times in the Bible and in the Gospels where Jesus warns them, I won't always be with you. There's coming a day I won't be with you. And they never seem to understand that. Jesus gets so frustrated with them because they just can't seem to understand what he's telling them. But he warns them. That he won't always be present with them. I think about today's Sunday school lesson. Okay, those of you who were studying the road, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. So here it is after the resurrection. Jesus is walking, the risen Lord is walking with these two disciples. And they're telling Jesus about the events in Jerusalem and they don't understand. They don't understand why Jesus had to die. They don't understand the empty tomb. They don't get it. And so what does Jesus do? He starts with Moses, the prophets. He walks them through the Old Testament and explains why these things had to happen. And still, they don't realize they're walking with Jesus until they get to Emmaus. And Jesus takes bread, He blesses it, He breaks it, and He gives it to them. And in that moment, their eyes are opened. And they realize it's Jesus. And then He disappears. Like, oh, Jesus, come on. Why is it they recognize Jesus in the taking, blessing, and breaking of bread? Because they've seen Him do it before. In the feeding of the 5,000, Mark says that Jesus took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples. Jesus is foreshadowing what He's going to do at the Last Supper, where He takes the bread, He blesses it, He breaks it, He gives it to His disciples. And so when He repeats that pattern right here, they recognize this is the bread of life. This is Jesus in our midst. Their hard, stubborn hearts, 
grow warmed within them. They say, in fact, uh, they say, uh, where's that verse at? I've, I've lost my track here. They say to Jesus, they say about Jesus, uh, look, our hearts were warmed within us. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Transforming their cold, stubborn hearts into hearts that are receptive to His presence. Listen, we need communion with Jesus. And I don't just mean the Lord's Supper table. I mean spending intimate time daily in His Word, in prayer, worshiping Him, desiring to be close in His presence. And that leads us to the last word here in this passage. It says, all who touched Him were healed. We, we, we reach out in compassion to others. We look up in communion with Jesus, but only Jesus can do this last thing. Only Jesus can cure our hearts. We need to look in and find hearts that are cured by Jesus. This word healed is the same word that can mean saved, delivered, made whole. That's what Jesus does for us when we come to Him in faith. When we surrender and choose to trust and obey Him, He saves us. He delivers us from sin. He takes our broken, hard hearts and He makes them whole and tender. Here's that verse, Luke 24, 32. Were not our hearts burning within us while He talked with us on the road and opened the Scriptures to us? Oh, that we would all have that experience with Jesus that as we open His Word and we spend time with Him, we experience Him transforming our hearts from the inside out. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What's the condition of your heart this morning? We're about to partake of the Lord's Supper. And Paul tells us before we approach this table, we should examine our hearts. What's the condition of your heart? Is it hard? Inflexible? Set in its ways? Are you resisting the Word and work of God in your life? Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. That's my, I implore you. Today, if you have heard His voice, and I pray that you have, don't harden your hearts. Maybe the voice of God today is calling you to salvation. You know that you're lost in your sins. I mean, yeah, maybe you've been going to church your whole life. Maybe you even got wet once. But you know deep down inside that your heart is hard. That you need Christ to forgive you and to give you a fresh start. You need His Holy Spirit within you. You've been playing the part. You've been talking the talk. But you know today you need Jesus. He wants to give you a new heart. He wants to put a new spirit within you. If you would just come today and trust in Him. Maybe you hear His voice calling you to unite with this church family. This is where you want to commune with Jesus. This is where you want to reach out in compassion with us to help our community and to reach our neighbors and the nations with the gospel, you say, I want to be a part of what God is doing at First Baptist Church. Or maybe this morning, the voice of God is calling you to service, to recommit your life to make disciples and to share the gospel with the people around you, to say yes to serving God in some capacity in this church. Maybe you've been asked, maybe you've had a burden on your heart to want to do this, but you've had your excuses, and today you say, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. Maybe God is even calling you to full-time ministry. Either in the church, on the mission field, in some ministry capacity. You've been putting it off. You've been like Jonah. You've been trying to run the other way. Today is the day. If you've heard His voice, I beg you, 
Do not harden your heart. We stand and pray. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, for how you come to us in our time of need. Even when that time of need is is us struggling in our obedience and sometimes following you is hard and it is a struggle and we don't always get it right and we find ourselves blown off course. We can't do it on our own. We need you, Jesus. Forgive us for our hard hearts. Forgive us for being stubborn and unwilling to change. I pray, Jesus, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would make them soft and tender, that we would trust you and obey you and experience the blessings of your presence and your power in our lives. Give us compassion towards others. Give us a a stronger desire for daily communion with you. Father, if there's anyone here today that is lost in their sin. They know they're separated from you. They, they have, they have even, even a doubt about where their eternal destiny is. I pray they would come today, right now, and put their faith and trust in you, Jesus. And let you give them a new heart. But Father, whatever your voice is speaking to our hearts, may we listen and obey and not harden. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.